Hey, you guys, thank you so much for tuning in to True Crime Obsessed. I'm having so much fun. I hope you're having fun listening to us. We are having the best time. Welcome to episode eight. We just want to let you know that we have seven other episodes about everything from Catfish to The Imposter to Casting Jean Bonnet, Kurt and Courtney, Mommy Dead and Dearest, two episodes on The Keepers. And we want you to know that you don't have to have watched the documentaries to enjoy the episodes. Yeah, we're not giving you homework. No. This is not a homework-y podcast. What we're doing is talking about the cases via the documentary. So if you want to watch the documentary, it's super fun to do it that way. Or if you're just curious about the case and you want to hear our thoughts and let us make you laugh... That's great, too. Yeah. Anyway, go to truecrimeobsessed.com to find our episodes. You can also find our episodes anywhere you get your podcasts. Hi, Julian Pensavalli. Hey, Patrick Hines. I mean, we've got serious stuff to... I guess I need to get used to the fact that we talk about serious things in this podcast. Yeah, welcome. <laughs> welcome to True Crime Obsessed. We talk about true crime things. What are we talking about today? I feel like a boxer, like, stretching, getting ready to I know. go. We are talking about the woman who wasn't there, about Tanya Head, who lied about being a 9-11 survivor. About being, like, nice. the 9-11 survivor. The face of 9-11 survivors. All the other 9-11 survivors were like, you know what? That day wasn't actually... As so bad. They, she makes them feel bad about their 9-11 experience, yeah. which I cannot even I know. deal with. Like, just think about that phrase. The first thing I felt was the air sucked out of my lungs, like a change in pressure. I was flying through the air from the impact. I was just flying. Then I remember the warmth from, from the explosion. I was smelling my own skin burning. We had all been through horrible things, but Tanya's was just hitting shoulders above anything else that any of us had gone through. It was a couple of days before the sixth anniversary. A New York Times reporter was going to do a story on her. I realized that this wasn't just a piece, this was an investigation. They're asking all these questions, they're fact-checking. The Times keeps calling me, the Times keeps calling. She was no longer even connected to us as friends. She was so caught up in her own mania. I didn't think it was possible. Tanya is not who she said she was. I didn't want to hear it. There's nothing that she could ever say that will ever change the pain. This was totally shocking. I want answers. I want to know who she is. I need to find that out. Before we get into her 9-11 story, let, let's just be clear that this documentary, it's one of those documentaries that was originally about something else and then became about this. So originally, this was a documentary that was being filmed I think to coincide with the fifth or sixth anniversary of, of, of 9-11 about this amazing woman, Tanya Head, who was a, like this had this crazy story of surviving 9-11 and had done all of these amazing things. It helped to like found all of these organizations and had really been there for all. So it started as that. And then slowly over the course of that year, between the fifth anniversary and the sixth anniversary, a major story breaks about this woman in the New York Times and about how this is all a lie. And so the documentary then becomes about that. Let's start with what her 9-11 story was. This was the story that she told reporters. This was the story that she told fellow 9-11 survivors. Let's take it from the top. Before we do, I just thank you for the documentary for using that like Bravo, like derpy music when like a housewife is hammered. Because she's like, I'm a 9-11 survivor. And then it's like, and you're like, oh, no, no, you're not. Wait, there's one other thing we have to talk about. What? Do you know the very first thing that flashes on the screen? Meredith Vieira Productions. I know. 
Way to go, Meredith Vieira. Right? She is the executive producer of this movie. Meredith was probably like, you know what? <laughs> I'm not going to let this stand. We're making a documentary and we're doing it now. <laughs> what if, like, this was the moment where Meredith Vieira pulled up a mic and was like, hi, guys. She was, like, our special guest. <laughs> I would love it. <laughs> Me too. I guess we have to go into her bullshit her story. story story. Yeah. Her story starts with, like, seeing the flames from the other building. Okay. Uh, and she, all she can think about is that, like, there's something is happening over there, and her fiancé, Dave, is there too. So she's counting the floors. Floors down from, from the top. He was on the 100th floor, and I was like, oh, my God, his floor is one of the floors that has been hit. And then, a few minutes later, she says that she hears... A woman started screaming, there's another plane coming, there's another plane coming. And the plane hits. And she can feel the heat. She's thrown into the wall. Her arm is severed almost yeah. all the way. And I'm I'm getting chills thinking about this because there are people who actually have these stories. Right. I'm going to try, listeners, I'm going to try not to get furious yeah. and just it's hard. tell the story. Because it's hard to watch. It's hard to watch because she's telling the story to the camera and it's just like a bold-faced lie, all right. of it. And people lived through that and people died in that. And she's yeah. being like, hey, so here's my perfect story. She's a widow. She's a survivor. She's then the face of 9-11. Like, yeah. she just has it all. But so her story, it like gets crazy. So she hits the marble wall. She passes out. She wakes up. Her arm is on fire. And she says she can smell her own skin burning. And then, no, this is one of those things, too, where, like, there's people who know about 9-11 know about the man with the red bandana. He was, like, this hero in the towers, in that tower, Mm -hmm. that was just, like, saving people. He was just, like, running around saving people. His name is Wells Crowther. And she claims that he saved her life. I remember Wells Crowther, the man with the red bandana. He had some type of cloth. And I felt him use that to, to put the flames out. And um, he hugged me and he said, um, just stay awake, stay awake, help is coming. For the right, let's give Wells the credit where credit's due. He was a 24 year old um, equities guy. And he was on the 104th floor. He saved over a dozen people. I mean, he was known. Everyone who was there has stories about the the man in the red bandana. He was a 24-year-old kid. I mean, yeah. it's like, And he went down with the ship. Like, yeah. he could have gotten out probably, but he yeah, went down with the ship. Yeah, he wasn't a firefighter. He was a 24-year-old equities guy. Yeah. And he just got the job done. He was awesome. And then she, she tells this part of the story comes through later but we'll include it here that she gets somehow gets down like a firefighter like carries her out of the building and as the building is collapsing throws her under a fire truck but like you can't write this shit right what are you talking about (laughs) and then she's like i i couldn't my neck was burned my back was burned my arm was basically falling off she had all this stuff and then she was like i was only in the hospital until thanksgiving of that year right then she like tells the story about how like she couldn't she's like i was in a wheelchair but i couldn't even operate the wheelchair because i only had one good arm my bag was really burned my arm was burned i couldn't walk so i was in a wheelchair i couldn't even pull myself um the wheelchair because i only had one good arm <laughs> you were not out of the hospital who was out of the hospital in two months with almost full body burns and an arm severed only and then the, holding the skin is holding it together give me a break right i hate this person so the next like the next part of her story is is that her fiance 
or husband, depending on on who she's talking to and when she's telling the story, because she goes back and forth. Right. Fiance, husband, Dave. I don't know. So he dies. He's in the the first building that get got hit, and he dies. Okay. So what's the okay? Tell the Dave story. Well, we start earlier in the documentary where she has a little cab. Let me show you something. Um, Dave and I met outside the World Trade Center when he stole my cab. So every year when I go to the site. I bring a New York City cop with me and I put it in the um, reflection pool um, so that he knows that I remember it. So then she tells this engagement story or this like surprise wedding story. So she comes home and Dave has flowers all over the floor and she's like, what is this? It's again, another fairy tale. She just Googled like fairy tale engagements and then <laughs> learned, rehearsed the script and told the story. Followed the rose petals and I found Dave standing there with a coconut bra and a grass skirt dancing to Hawaiian songs. And I was like, oh my God. <laughs> and then she, he made, quote, disgusting Hawaiian food and whisked her off to Hawaii where they had the surprise. She was like, what am I doing? Like, she didn't ask And any these questions. four, like, Hawaiian warriors, like, walk her down to the beach where her parents are there to surprise her and they get married. No, they didn't. Well, they have a ceremony. A wedding ceremony. How convenient is this? Right. That they just had, a like, a party. They just, like looked at each other and held hands in Hawaii and right. then just called it a wedding. This is how gays used to get married, by the way. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so she conveniently, they are not married. And this is happens to be a month before 9-11. Right. The excuse she makes as to why they're conveniently not legally married, so there's no documents that either that this guy exists or that they are together, her excuse is that, well, we were going to get married officially the next month, so we just didn't do the paperwork. Right. Here's my thing. As, a, as an, a fellow married person, I think you'll understand. If you're getting married in a month, you just get the paperwork done. Yeah. That's not a reason. Like, we're getting married in a month, so we, like, purposely didn't file the paperwork. That's the opposite. So, in fact, speaking as a person who had to get married three different times, to, to coincide with like the slowly evolving marriage rights of gay and lesbian <laughs> humans I promise you straight people who aren't married yet it's not that hard it's not that and you just if it, especially if it's a month away like oh yeah. shit we gotta get the paperwork right exactly it's not like it's a month away so we're not gonna get the paperwork <laughs> right, like exactly. Tanya <laughs> And the thing is, look, lying about being a 9-11 survivor is hands down the most offensive thing about this. Her we got Maui joke is a very close second. (laughs) And I resent that she made me even say the words out loud. And the next morning, we started calling all our friends and families, telling them we had gotten (laughs) Maui. Not married, but Maui. Oh, and there's no emotion with the the love story either. Right. It's the same script. It's just the way she thinks she should be maybe telling it. Yeah. And then we meet the survivors of this group, and you're like, see, now that's a 9-11 survivor. Right. So then, so what we what we learn about Tanya, it, before we, like, really learn what really happened, all we know is that, like, she survived 9-11, and she, her fiancé didn't, and now she's, like, apparently, like, the busiest most like she oh she has I thought of you when she said this line what? I have it in all red. thought of how mad it's gonna make me yeah great um she says she's been working twenty four seven for the various groups and that's how my anger was channeled because of this obsession that I had to to really not be like the hijackers look. <laughs> Do you want to take a minute and like gather your I thoughts? I might need to. Uh, but the thing about the I don't know what I hate more, what I resent the most, but it's just like if you're gonna fake being a 9-11 survivor, also please don't. PSA. Please do not do that. That makes you the worst. That makes you worse than You're like um, on level with Joe Maskell. And like Skinnell. Like, yeah. come on, please. But like 9-11 was the worst. It was so horrible. There's no need to exaggerate. Mm-hmm. So her story is like 
everything is the ultimate. Like she was on the hundredth floor. There, then there was a firefighter. Then there was the man with the red bandana. Then her arm was severed off. Like pick one yeah, yeah. and go with it. Thrown under a fire truck as like, the building came down around and her. And she was a widow. And the, the <laughs> right. Hawaiian wedding where it's like you have to just go. You can't pick the worst part of every little yeah little personality you want to create. Just go with one. And also don't lie about being a 9-11 survivor. Just like if you get nothing else out of this, guys. Ugh. So – now we start meeting like the people that she's met since then, and one of the first people we meet is this guy named Brendan. And the first, my first thought was like, "Why do you sound like you're on the radio?" Like he just has such a radio he seems voice. So familiar to me. He does seem familiar. I don't know what that is. Brendan, get in touch. I had many conversations with Tanya, just one-on-one conversations, where she gave me a lot of support, like nobody else had. He's the he was the first person of all of her like contemporaries to say that he in learning her story, felt like he didn't belong in those groups. Like, all of these people were so desperate to find other survivors, and then they find them, and then they hear Tanya's story, and they're like, well, we don't, we shouldn't be here, because her story was so horrific. My story was so insignificant to what she went through that my first reaction writing to her was, that's horrible, and I don't belong in this group. Like, to make an actual 9-11 survivor feel guilty that their story isn't tragic yeah. enough yeah, is horrible. But I will also have to say about Brendan is that he's the first person to be like, hang on a second. He goes on a late night Google frenzy. He does. The thought crossed my mind, what if she's one of these people who just never tells the truth and she just made everything up? You know, the, the thought crossed my mind, but I, I didn't think it was possible. He goes on a Google search and he like basically looks up Dave, the fiance. Whenever she talked about Dave, she never showed any pictures or anything. We never met Dave's family. And, like, finds out that, yeah, like, this guy really existed. He existed. Uh, He was where she said he was, and, you know, he died on that day. There were a lot of newspaper articles, message boards. He's a very popular guy. But there was one thing that wasn't there. Any mention of Tanya anywhere. And there's a whole lot of talk about, like, in retro, in hindsight, like, you just can't question a 9-11 survivor's story. Like, that would have been the cruelest thing. And everyone deals with trauma in their own way. If she wanted to separate, I don't know what, in real life, if Dave's family was like, it's just too hard to see you. I don't know. I mean, people deal with it in their own way. And she, she used that and she milked it for all it was worth. And so... Brendan, like, learns that she's not who she says she is, but he's too scared to tell anybody. Right. Because he sees the kind of, like, crazy maniac she is because of a guy named Jerry. Yeah. So Jerry's a guy who founded the World Trade Center Survivors Network. And it's, like, another group in addition to the ones that Tanya has started. So they have, like, they meet one night. She goes to one of his meetings. They go out for coffee. They hit it off. And his whole plan is to combine these groups into one. I suggested that she come to a meeting of the Survivors Network as a way of bringing, bringing these two groups together. We ended up going for coffee that same day. And we decided to uh, unite forces. And we formed the World Trade Center Survivors Network. And then, like, slowly over time, Tanya, like... Tanya gets on the board. Jerry's on the board. The whole idea of this group is that they don't have presidents, vice presidents. There's not like a hierarchy. It's just you guys are all in this together, dealing with it the best you can. And then one night before they have like the board elections, Jerry gets a call from Tanya. We were having our annual elections for the board. And uh, the night before the election meeting, Tanya called me and started to talk to me about, you don't really want to come to this meeting now, do you? You know, that type of thing. And um, I started talking. I said, yeah, no, I'm really, I, I, I want to be there and so forth. And then I realized through the conversation that what was, she was really saying is that I wasn't going to be elected to the board or reelected to the board. And I even said that to her. I said, you're telling me I'm not going to be reelected. And she was kind of quiet. 
And I said, well, I'm still going to be there. And then the next day, they publish a press release. And Tanya is the president. And he's like, we never had a president. Right. We didn't have any of this. Yeah. And Jerry is standing there thinking, like, how the hell did I alienate all these people? Guess what you didn't? Tanya did. <laughs> right. Because she couldn't manipulate Jerry. And you could tell Jerry's not really taking any shit. It's and true, yeah. Jerry is definitely not taking so shit. So she goes to everybody else and tries to turn them against him. And she succeeds. So Brendan even says he was scared to say anything because while Tanya is a bona fide lunatic, he saw what she did to Jerry. He can't risk that. He needs this group. These people were so important in my life. They brought me back. You know, they, they made me into a human being again. I don't know what would have happened if I never met them. And I did not want to lose that. You know, I, I, I just could see her making all these people go away. In spite of everything that she did, the other people in the group are really helping each other. Right. And he had to sacrifice that. And he said, he's like, I knew I would tell someday. Right. I knew deep down that I was going to tell eventually. You know, I I just knew. But I didn't want to do it. I mean, I was just too scared because I knew the power that she had over people. The one thing I want to point out is that this is 2001. This is before Facebook. This is before search engines, really. This is probably before Google, I'm thinking. Yeah, it was a Yahoo message board. Right. That's what it was. So, like, the whole thing is that, like, you know, now they'd all be finding each other on Facebook. There's so much information available for people there. They didn't have any of that back then. So, like, there wasn't, like, the idea of, like, like checking this person out or trying to, like, find out if their story was true. It's just kind of like nobody was doing that. Yeah. Had we actually compared nose like we do now, we would have realized something was wrong. And then we meet Alison Crowther, who's Wells, the man, the man in the red bandana, his mother. Yeah. I first heard the name Tanya Head when a friend of ours, who we gotten to know, a very lovely woman who volunteers down at Grand Zero, called me and said, Alison, I think... I've, I, I, I've met someone, I've heard of someone else who well saved. So Allison is like, I want to meet this woman. I, I can't believe there was, there's someone else that my son saved. I want to meet her. And Tanya, this is a, the start of a trend. She's reluctant to meet them. She doesn't really want to. And Tanya's excuse is basically like, Kelly Kapoor in the office. Like, sometimes people are just really mean to the hot, popular girl. She's like, sometimes families just hate me and they can't understand that I'm alive and their child isn't or their family member isn't. So families are really mean to me a lot. It must also be a thing of, like, can I really look this woman in the eye and say that I met her son? I hope so. I really, I sincerely hope that that's a part of it. Yeah. That she so has some kind of guilt in some she way. She does go, like, they, the, I love that they're, like, so waspy. They're like, well, we're members of the Princeton Club. Like, well, we can just have- go there, darling. <laughs> I said, well, fine. You know, we'll meet, we're members of the Princeton Club and have dinner there. She seemed very grateful and we were, you know, very pleased. It was a beautiful thing. We were, we were very moved that she'd been saved and, and obviously it meant so much to her. Because Tanya's like, it has to be very private. Very, very, very private. Like, she's basically like, no paparazzi, please. Right. Yeah. So they go, and then, like, Allison, the mom, is like, it was lovely. It was a great dinner. Cut to, we see footage of the, of, of the memorial service, where they have this, like, beautiful Phoenix Rising from the Ashes mm-hmm. statue, and they ask Tanya to come and, like, speak. Tanya was on that 78th floor sky lobby, and she's here with us today, thank God. And I'm going to ask her now if she would speak a little for you. True to form, 
Tanya's having some trouble. She just can't get through it. She's so emotional, she can't do it. Which maybe to your point, she just, how do I face this memorial and lie to them? So she has her friend, her best friend from the survivors group, Linda, actually read the statement that Tanya had prepared. I remember when we got to his service, Tanya was a nervous wreck. She couldn't get up. She couldn't read the piece, and she had asked me to read it. Which brings us to Linda. We gotta talk about Linda. (laughs) Linda is like, she just says the most amazing things about Tanya. Tanya taught me how to live life with grace, uh, with courage, uh, with the strength to overcome, to me, some of the scariest things that I've ever faced in my entire life. The one thing, though, can I talk, that joke? Which one? Okay, so Linda, so they're talking about, and everyone in the survivor group was like, they were inseparable. They were like BFFs, they were everywhere. And of course, like, I don't know what they're going to play in my true crime documentary because there's like no home video of me, but there's like tons of home video of these parties. Always. So it's Linda and Tanya, and they're talking to each other, and it's like, let's do our impression of someone at the U.S. Open, and then they move their heads from side to side. Let's show him what regular people at the U.S. Open do. You ready? Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> and then it's like, what does a survivor do at the U.S. Open? Let's show him now what survivors do when they go to the U.S. Open. And then they look up, and no one gets it. And Linda's like, because we're looking for the planes overhead. Check out for planes. Thank you watching the planes. <laughs> and she and Tanya are hysterical. And I'm I like, know. I don't. I don't think that's fun. Like, I know. if you guys need to laugh about it and find, like, that's okay. But I was just like, if anyone else did that joke, it would be the most <laughs> offensive thing on the world. And it I is know. because Tanya wasn't a real survivor. <laughs> um, so Linda, a real survivor of 9-11, is the description of Tanya's therapeutic flooding sessions. So – Tanya, having been through this, like, telling people that she's been through this, like, extreme survival 9-11 experience, is in therapy where she has to do what's called flooding. Tanya was in the middle of doing this very intensive therapy called flooding to face Dave's death. You would tell your story to the therapist and you would record it. And you have to keep reliving over and over again the experience of the tragic or traumatic event that went through your life. And so Linda is like sits with her in her apartment and like listens to these videos. And then Linda talks about how it like affects her dreams. I started incorporating what she had told me on the tape into my nightmares. And there wasn't almost a night that I didn't have a building collapsing on me. First of all, that's an amazing thing for a friend to do. A, A fellow survivor reliving your story day in and day out and then taking it on so then linda's like hey i because linda was worried that tanya was suicidal she's getting really distant about dave and she's kind of freaking out and we know that it's probably hopefully the guilt yeah that's just eating away at her so linda's like i really want to help you i really want to help you but i have to tell you this is really affecting me in a negative way and i can't i'm sorry but i can't do the flooding and what does tanya say to her you're a terrible friend you're selfish how dare you get out didn't i realize that the trauma that she had sustained was so much worse than the trauma I had sustained. I mean, how can how can I live with that? So as the sixth anniversary is approaching, this is where it all starts to fall apart because mm-hmm. the New York Times, David Dunlap wants to write a story on Tanya, just like a story about this like amazing survivor. They really just wanted to do a really nice story on her six years later. Where was she? You know, that she went to Harvard and Stanford. She's doing all these wonderful things. Tanya immediately is like, I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. Like, I don't want to answer these questions. He was asking a lot of personal questions that she did not want to answer. And he was going to write a lot of lies about her. Because she knows 
shows that like no one has dared question her story, but now there's a reporter who's just going to do like simple fact checking. And the minute the reporter is getting all this pushback, they're like, well, this just went from a story to an investigation. Right. Way to go. <laughs> exactly what you didn't want us to do. Now we're doing. Exactly. So she has people from the survivors group like calling the New York Times saying, you really got to get off her back. She's not going to answer any questions. She begged me to call the reporter and tell him to stop. I called up and I left a message saying, I understand you're doing a story on her. She does not wish to have a story written on her. Please respect her her request. And I love how uh, Lori was like, she was driving us all fucking crazy. She was driving us fucking crazy. She would call us constantly, several times a day to talk about this stuff. And of course, everybody kept saying, just talk to the Times already. What is your problem? It's Brandon who says every year before the anniversary, Tanya has like a barbecue at her house. And at the barbecue, Tanya is losing her mind because the reporter's getting real serious about getting in touch with her. You know, she was crying, running out of the barbecue and everything. She was sitting outside with Janice, crying hysterically, saying, they're, they're asking all these questions. They're fact-checking. But, and, and she's basically like, so tell me about how you and Dave got married. And she can't, like, it's, yeah. it's really basic <laughs> questions that she right. is, like, rolling on the floor screaming. About. Right. And so, like, literally, Brandon being the only one at this point who's, like, knows for certain that Tanya wasn't there, but she hasn't said anything to anybody yet. Brandon's like, girl, they on to you. Yeah. I'm thinking, this guy's on to her because there's no reason why she should be so uncomfortable about this. And then, what happens at the St. Regis? Okay, so Tanya, again, just pulls another story out of the clear blue sky and tells Linda that... She told me that Merrill Lynch had arranged a family conference at the St. Regis. There were 11 co-workers that had died with her. And these families wanted to know how their loved ones died. So then... She goes there, and then she calls Linda, and she's panicking. She's having a panic attack on the phone. They're so mean to me. They're yelling and screaming. I'm trying to explain. I don't know what's where. It's like, okay, number one, that would never happen. Number two, then why are you going if the families are always so mean to you? Remember right. how you were telling everybody that? So why would you go? So Linda's like, I get there. She's literally on the side of, the, like, at the side street of the St. Regis Hotel on the ground, kicking and screaming and sobbing hysterically. And Linda's like, oh my God, girl, like we got to figure something out. And I helped her up and I said, let me bring her inside to the, to the hotel. They probably know exactly. They were probably there. They probably arranged it. And when I went inside and I begged them for a quiet place for us to sit, they didn't even know what I was talking about. Yeah, so of course there was no luncheon where these people were going to just bully Tanya, like invite her there for like a reverse right. intervention and then yell at her about being a 9-11 survivor. Like, what are you talking about? Right. So then Linda's like, I'm sorry, what? They, they have like a, and I'm sorry, what off, basically. The concierge's like, I'm sorry, what? And she's like, no, I'm sorry, what? I'm sorry, what? What? And Linda's like, you know the woman having a full-on tantrum outside? Can we just have a nice, quiet place to sit because of all, the, all these people who are really mean to her? And the concierge is like, again, I'm just going to say, I'm sorry, what? And Linda, you know what? How nice Linda is to do this after Tanya basically like tried to have a trauma off with her after she was like, I can't. Like, trying to out-trauma her when she was like, Linda was like, I can't go through the, this flooding experience, you nutcase. Like, Linda. There does come a point where you want to just be like, Linda, girl. Linda, open your eyes. But it's like, I she needs, like, oh. I know, I know. So then, Jersey Janice, what does she do? I don't know if she's Jersey or Queens. Can we have her be Queens? Okay, Queens. Queens, Queens, Queens Janice. Janice. We'll you. just call her Queen Janice. Yes! <laughs> I love you, Janice. Queen Janice agrees to, like, go... Janice tells Tanya she needs a lawyer. I had suggested to her to get an attorney. 
I says, why don't you get yourself an attorney? This way, then you know what your rights are. Yeah, and she, they're also saying, like, if they write, if they slander you in the New York Times, like, you can always just say that's not true. Right, but Tanya's like, oh, wait, I can't prove any of that. Right. So I just can't talk to them. Doesn't anybody get it? Some full of shit. So Queen Janice is like, let's go. I'll take you to a lawyer. And she's like a child. Like, doesn't it feel like Janice had to, like, take her to the lawyer yeah. and hold her hand? And the lawyer's like, like, can you wait outside for five minutes because you don't have attorney-client privilege? Janice's like, sure. She looks at the clock. She's like, it's been two and a half hours, guys. What's going on in yeah, here? Yeah, can we talk about this? And before they go in, Tanya says to Janice in the elevator, she was like, oh, well, I'm not a citizen. Oh, so that's why right. I can't talk to the reporters. So I said doesn't matter to me you're not a U.S. citizen. You know, that's okay. I don't think anybody will mind that you're not a U.S. citizen. So now Tanya's just grasping at straws because she's literally, like, she's, like, going up in the elevator and the doors are going to open and then she's going to be talking to a lawyer and what is she going to do? Like, she didn't plan for this. Right. It's like that scene of The Sopranos where Carmela's like, Tone, is this it? When there's, like, a knock at the door. It's like, that's how you live every day of your life. Like, the feds are coming any any day now, any time. Someone's going to ask the right question or the wrong question or whatever. So then, right, two and a half later, two and a half hours go by and Janice is like... Hey guys, sorry to interrupt. Just want to see because why? Like, is she... this going to be an all day thing? Yeah, or... like, and Janice is probably paying for it because Tony's a child, and she's like, mm, "We're coming up on three hours. You're like eight hundred dollars an hour. What's happening?" So then the lawyer is like, "Janice, girl, come on in. Yeah. We all have to have a conversation. Family meeting. It really is like." Tanya's in the principal's office, and now yeah. the principal is like, it's okay, it's okay, Tanya, just just tell the truth. So the lawyer is now saying things, and Janice is sort of hearing all these new phrases for the first time, like, Tanya, it's okay that you didn't know Dave for that long. That you only dated for three months and you weren't actually married. And Tanya, again, and then... She's like, say what? Yeah, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> She's now part of the I'm sorry, what team. And then it's, well, it's okay that you didn't work in the World Trade Center and you were only there for that day. You were just visiting for the day. And Jan- there's like an epic record scratch where it's like, <laughs> and Janice is like, hold on. All of these things are coming together. And she really, like Merrill Lynch, like, no, like, it's okay. There's no record of you working at Merrill Lynch. Where it's like, first of all, none of this is okay, lawyer. None right, of totally. it. And I just could not believe what I was hearing. I was like, I actually, I think I went into shock. So then what happens is like then you see you see from like the other friends perspectives Janice calling all of the friends and Janice being- like does like a fo- like a bye bye birdie like the phone <laughs> Call. Uh, Hugo. <laughs> yeah. Did you hear that Tanya's a liar? <laughs> my husband is going to love that so much. <laughs> I love Bye Bye Birdie. Oh my God, I love it. Dick Van Dyke, anytime, any day of the week. So, and, and Margaret, come on. Totally. Please. 38 year old Anne Margaret acting like 16 year old Kim McAfee. <laughs> I'm going to watch that tonight now. So Janice does like the phone call. Like the phone tree. The phone tree. And everyone is like Googling. And Everyone's like, what? Like people don't believe it. Poor. And Brendan's in the back like, hey guys. <laughs> hey, yeah, I know. The person that we saw that we believed in never existed. Everyone's losing their mind about this. Yeah, because Tanya was unraveling so obviously, whether yeah. it's outside in the front of the St. Regis Hotel or at her barbecue. She was just throwing herself on the floor. Like, she needed a, f- a fainting couch. She was yeah. out of control. <laughs> so then when someone calls, when Janice calls and she's like, I, like, I have to tell you something about Tanya, everyone's like, oh my god, this is the phone call. She did it. Like, yeah, she, she killed she herself. Her, like, the, yeah. the, oh my god. And meanwhile, she's like, no, actually. Not actually, yeah. She's just the worst person we've all ever met. <laughs> yeah. So, like, meanwhile, towards the end of the movie, it starts cutting back and forth between the New York Times story and then like Barcelona, Spain where she's actually from and this reporter and stuff like I'm like and also her childhood best friend I'm like how did you get the best friend to talk? Because the best friend 
sings like a canary and is like, um, she has been, she's been a liar since she was a kid. Her, she came from a really super spoiled family. Yeah. Her father and brother were involved in fraud. Totally. So this is kind of, she was always the center of attention, but she was very self-conscious about her weight and she was always lying about boyfriends and even Sonia, Sonia is the best friend where she's like, yeah, she would tell me about all these like handsome boyfriends and I'd be like, sure you did. (laughs) But what is like, what's like the one like bum 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 moment? I have two. Okay. (laughs) One that her name's Alicia. Yeah. Her name is not Tanya Head. Not at all. Not even close. Yeah. And that she was in this epic car crash where she like did have her arm almost severed off. Yeah. And so somebody somebody says that like I think Brandon's the one that's like, you know, she knew how survivors felt after going through something like that and she became one of us. Then we learn uh, September 11th is a holiday in Spain, I guess. And so we don't have like she was in school at the time getting her MBA. So we don't have like video. We can't prove that she like wasn't in America that day, but we do know that a week later she was back at school and didn't tell any of her friends anything about having been in New York, having been there for 9/11. And then there's video of her on in 2002 getting her diploma. Alicia like, she was nowhere near living in New York at that time. Right. Nowhere near it. So I do have questions. It is like, I mean, obviously, like, she was online learning about the survivors and just, like, mimicking them. It's just so crazy. Like, they don't get into it in the documentary about how, like, she actually moved here and then was able to pretend she'd been here the whole time. Yeah. I mean, she really catfished the shit out of everybody. That's what I was thinking. She did catfish, because she was doing it all via the internet. From what I can tell she had never been in the World Trade Center. It's obvious she did a research on Dave, who she had never met. I mean, she knows where her company was located. So she probably did a research on us. She was probably just watching us and trying to see what we were talking about and how we felt. And she adopted the personality. Yeah. And then when they met, she was just... As though she she'd like, always been here. Yeah. And they talk about how, like, she would rent office space for what, when people would come to visit her at her, quote, office. And Elliot tells that story about her dog. The dog. That's the funniest. So Lupe's walking her. And she always talked about her dog, Elvis. And at one of the times that I was in her apartment, I said, where's your dog? I never see your dog. And she would always have the same answer. Uh, Lupe <laughs> is walking him. And I remember one day I said, boy, that dog has walked a lot. That's the most walked dog. I mean, that dog must love Lupe because she's always walking him. And then one day, eventually she just looks at her and she's like, Tanya, do you have a dog? <laughs> Tanya, do you or don't you have a dog? And the way she explains it is so haunting because she says. And she just looked at me and went, yeah, of course I have a dog. The way that Tanya was just like, just looked at her, I'm sure, just a little step like, no, I have a dog. Yeah. Like, just robotic, and it's just like, wow, she is totally, completely committing. Psycho. So, in the end, she she just dis- she vanishes, and for three years, nobody sees or hears anything of her. People think that maybe she killed herself. Nobody knows anything about it. There's one report that in says there was an email sent to the Survivors Network in 2008 from an email oh, from Spain right. saying that she had killed herself. There's like, it's it's not really confirmed, but yeah. it totally sounds like something she'd do. Right. And so that means that even after this, after basically she was caught still in 2008, she's still like kind of needling at this survivor group. But then three years later, the director randomly is on the street with his camera. Is it random? Did he know she would be there? 
I don't know, but it's the most tabloidy thing. The only thing. Ever. So what happens is like. You, you see, it goes to like a black screen and it explains that like no one's seen her, or no heard one from her knows. in three years. I wrote it all down because it's hilarious. Oh, say it. Read it. So it's the most tabloid thing ever. It's like yeah. the screen goes black and it says, no one knew what became of Tanya Head. And then it's like shaky out of focus camera <laughs> in the streets of New York City. It's been three years. Shaky out of focus camera in New York City. Then on September 14th, 2011... And then there's, like, footage of her waiting for the bus. Yeah. And there's no um, audio, really, but she's, like, pointing and wagging her finger. Like, she recognizes the camera guy. Of course. And starts yelling at him. Also, that's the effing 10th anniversary. Yeah. So she was back. At, like, she can't stay away. Right. My, I have issues with this ending because there clearly was more. I feel like I have actually seen that raw video of her being like, you need to turn the camera off. But, like, in the actual movie, you just see the camera get, gets close to her and then it's over. Right. Why didn't they play the rest of it? I don't know. Like, what? that's crazy to me. Yeah. You know what I mean? I totally agree. Like, that was, I forgot that it ended like that. And I, I this this afternoon, getting ready for this, spent time online trying to find the rest of that video, and I couldn't find it, but I feel like I've seen it before. You hear her talking. You hear her call the guy by name, saying, you need to get away from me. You need to get away from me. What? Yeah. I think. Maybe I'm making that up, but I feel like I searched out that video and found it once. Well, I guess there's really, like, I do, I do, I would have loved to see that, but, like, how else do you end it? Yeah. She lied. She was caught. She disappeared. Yeah. Like, it's kind of simple. I mean, I despise this person. Yeah. And I, I'm in the camp of, like, uh, uh, sure, there are mental health issues at play here, obviously. Yeah. But at the but same time. But she's also, like, a, like she's, I would, I would put her in the camp of sociopaths. Absolutely. So she has to be a dangerous person. Yeah, she didn't seem to care. It was all about her and her story and her being the hero and whatever. And she really did not care. Like, even asking Linda to do that flooding with her is not is being so unaware of what that would do to Linda. Right, exactly. It, that would be traumatic for someone who was not a survivor. Yeah, To totally. hear that. And then to, to ask Linda to do that is absurd. Mm-hmm. It just is wrong. Yeah. And then to be mad at her for it and then make it about how Linda's so selfish and awful, it's like, oh, man, you are not here, are you? You are not here at all. At all. I'm kind of proud of myself. I didn't flip a table or anything. I kept my anger and emotions in check. I was worried. Good good on you, girl. My shoulders are up to my ears, though. I feel like I'm very tense about it. Uh, Quick programming note, you guys. We are taking next week off for the 4th of July. But, Jillian, tell the people what we're doing when we come back the following week. Capturing the Freedmans. Oh, that creep fest. It, I love that documentary. Do you know that I've never seen it? I've seen it like a hundred times because that's one right, of the ones you know I go to. I'm bragging about how much you're watching this. <laughs> there was a time in my life before I had a child. <laughs> uh, tell the people where they can find us. You can go to truecrimeobsessed.com. You can find us anywhere you get your podcast, And come hang out with us on Twitter at truecrimeobsessed. No ED. And email us at truecrimeobsessed at gmail.com. Uh, you guys, don't go away just yet. We are going to play a promo for another podcast that I am literally totally obsessed with called Unconcluded. Orlando police detectives say their strongest piece of evidence is this surveillance image of a person of interest, as well as Jennifer's car, which was found at a condo complex about a mile from where she lived. On January 24, 2006, 24-year-old Jennifer Kessie was reported missing when she failed to show up for work. The only lead in the case? A mysterious person of interest captured on video leaving her car. To this day, That person, and Jennifer's whereabouts, 
are still unknown. Unconcluded is a real-time investigative podcast taking another look. You can subscribe or listen on Apple Podcasts or your favorite app. So we're still waiting for that one person to come through with the one bit of information that could bring Jennifer home.